Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about the drip stops here is Dr. Ozai Todd Hisham. Dr. Hisham is a board-certified otolaryngologist, ear, nose, and throat, that has been in practice for more than a decade. She has worked at the DC Veteran Affairs Medical Center, where she served as an ENT section chief. For the last six years, she has been in private practice focusing on surgical of thyroid disease, salivary gland, and office-based sinus procedures. Dr. Hisham is also, an active, is also active in global health and volunteers her time doing international medical work. The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. How are you doing today, Dr. Hisham? I'm doing great, Jason. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. Yes, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation, but before we get started, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get those questions answered. So, Dr. Hisham, I'm going to turn it over to you. The drip stops here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a little bit of play on words, and um, <laughs> I hope most of you get it. But uh, I'm going to be talking about the causes of nasal rhinitis and their treatment and focusing on maybe some of the more unusual causes of rhinitis. And we'll go over what um, even rhinitis means to begin with. Um, because we're probably more familiar with the most common ways that we would describe rhinitis. You know, um, usually people come into my office and they say, hey, doc, I have a runny nose or my nose drips all the time. We call that rhinorrhea or they say that I have a drip. You know, I have a sinus drip. Um, that's a common um, complaint that patients have. Um, you know, post-nasal drainage is that feeling of mucus dripping in the back of the throat, having to constantly throat, you know, clear your throat or maybe even it makes you cough. Um, people have itching in their throat or their nose. It may make um, you sneeze, it, and it, it may also cause watery eyes. So that's what you know. Uh, if if somebody were to say, okay, what is rhinitis? That's usually what you know the few things or symptoms that constitute um, a diagnosis of rhinitis. Now, what causes rhinitis? You know, the most common reason are allergies. And that's, you know, given in Washington, D.C. area and Northern Virginia and Maryland and this area specifically, um, we have quite a bit of outdoor and out indoor allergens. Um, you know, whether you're looking at pollen, trees, um, grasses, ragweed, um, you know, more of the outdoor stuff. People can be allergic to their pets and the pet dander, obviously, cats and dogs most commonly. Um, and then indoor stuff like molds, dust mites, cockroach, etc. Uh, and those can be uh, sometimes the mold and dust mites specifically more ubiquitous. No matter how clean or spotless your home is, you could still be exposed to it. And when that could lead to that can these kind of vague, mild symptoms of congestion and runny nose and dripping in the back of the throat. And then there's those patients who don't have allergies and they have um, the same symptoms. And we categorize those patients under the category of non-allergic rhinitis. Um, and then that non-allergic rhinitis term encompasses a, a large variety of different reasons why patients may have this problem. So, um, you know, we separated into different categories. Vas vasomotor is one of the more common ones. Um, you know, folks who, uh, they say, as soon as I walk into an air-conditioned room or car, my nose is running, it's dripping, I'm sneezing. Or if I walk outside or run outside in the cold and the wet wind's blowing, 
uh, it makes my nose run. And yes, most of us, when we, we go outside in the cold, we get a little congested, but I'm talking about debilitating, like, you know, constantly running nose, congestion, eyes tearing, looks like you're crying outside. That's not normal. Some people just have anatomical issues. They have a deviated septum, and a deviated septum not only makes it difficult for them to breathe through their nose, but, um, you know, when they touch their nose or they blow their nose, they get a certain um, uh, contact spot, which can lead to an irritation. Kind of like what happens when you sometimes maybe hit your nose in the wrong spot or something goes a little bit too far up your nose and it makes your nose run and you get congested. In it. But that happens all the time, regardless of the trauma. Um, and then um, the other thing that can happen is some people, they start eating. As soon as they start eating, their nose starts running. You know, the classic example is um, the elderly man, um, you know, having dinner and constantly taking out a handkerchief every time they take a bite because they have to blow their nose. And this becomes, I mean, this may sound like it's not a big deal, but actually it becomes a major issue for socialization because I, I've had patients who've stopped going out and hanging out with their friends, especially during COVID times, because, you know, well, obviously they're not going to, to dinner on at restaurants, but they feel like everybody's looking at them or they feel like that people think that they're sick or but it's just a, a, a reaction that's happening when they ever start, they start salivating, their nose starts running too. Then there's nerve sensitivity um, that can happen with obviously nerve sensitivity inside the nose, but it can also be seen in, in some rare cases of dementia like Alzheimer's and in Parkinson's patients as well. It can have a runny nose that is not due to an allergy, that is not due to an, a cold or an infection, and it's just there all the time. Um, Rhinitis of pregnancy is another one. It's a hormonal situation um, that can happen. Medication-related, medication, medication related, you know, those sprays that we tell you not to use all the time, over-the-counter nasal sprays like Afrin and Vicks, those can cause similar issues themselves. Um, you know, with age itself, you can also get dryness and um, thinning of the lining of the nose, which can lead to irritation, and then that can cause you to have a runny nose. And you kind of put that into the atrophic category, but I kept the atrophic category separate because we can also see it in patients who've had injury to the inside of their nose. Um, trauma from burns or inhaling smoke or folks who've used drugs in their nose, they can also get um, damage and then that could lead to a runny nose and congestion all the time, regardless of the fact that they don't have allergies. And then finally, a small group of people can have None of that above stuff, and they may just have really bad acid reflux, and they can give them a postnasal drainage. I'm not going to delve too much into that, but that keep that in the back of your mind as a possibility. So, how do we diagnose what is exactly going on in patients who have this? Um, you know, obviously, uh, most of us start off by seeing our primary care doctor, and our primary care doctor may give us allergy meds, or they may give us some another nasal sprays, or tell us to use saline, or you know, nasal washes like the neti pot, and a majority of the time it works and you don't even have to see an ENT doc. But <clears throat> if it doesn't work and you're continuing to be bothered by this, then you go see your ENT and your ENT is going to really spend a lot of time talking to you and asking you a lot of questions because those questions is really important. That they, they help you get a history on the patient and personalize the care for the patient so that you can find out the history. And, and like one of my um, you know, mentor said to me, 90% of any diagnosis is the patient's history. So you really have to listen to the patient and see what, you know, and when they have this problem. And then examine, you examine the patient, you know, look in their ear, look in their nose, look in their throat, the usual stuff. But in our ENT offices, we have some, you know, really cool 
fancy toys called the nasal endoscopes where we can um, safely and comfortably, it's not painful, it look, can look scary, uh, look inside the nose with a small, you know, endoscopic uh, camera that can sometimes be also even broadcast on a screen where the patient can see it. But most of the time we see it, you know, look at it through the eyepiece itself. And then uh, finally, if there's any indication on the exam or the history, we may do a CT scan. Um, but that's not usually something that we would jump to from the beginning um, or do. And then allergy testing. Allergy testing is important if you've had um, no response to allergy meds or you've had some response to allergy meds, but you kind of want to know, okay, what am I allergic to? What do I need to avoid? Do I need to take medicine all year round? Or is it something that I can only do during seasons that this is going to be bothering me? Um, or if I don't have allergies, what else could be going on and how can we treat that? So that can, those, you know, just those things can give us quite a bit of information and they can really narrow down your treatment. Um, and what we usually do, we want to start off with medical management and anything in medicine. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we were following evidence, scientific evidence that's been, you know, uh, tried and tested as much as possible. Nothing is 100%, but we want to make sure that we drive our treatment with evidence. And we want to make sure that the, the treatment that we're giving to the patient uh, can give them the least amount of side effects and doesn't cause any more problems. So you can treat something, but you don't want to give them another problem that now they're dealing with. Um, so all those things are really important. So that ladder of treatment, you know, going from the least invasive to the most invasive is important. So you want to start with the least invasive. You treat the allergy. You how do you treat the allergy? You avoid allergens if possible. You mitigate the environment, um, you know, whether you get mattress covers or get an air purifier or anything like that use allergy medication. Um, but before that, maybe you just start off with just saline washes, such as salt water. And it's natural and it's normal and it's, it doesn't have any side effects and it can really help you know, many, many patients. And then if those things don't work or if they work a little bit, but maybe you need a little bit extra help, then you start off with nasal sprays. Nasal sprays like Flonase are over the counter. Nasacort is another op, you know, uh, example. Rhinocort is another example. They're all in the same category of nasal steroid sprays that help patients with congestion and runny nose and post-nasal drainage. And then there's also nasal antihistamine sprays. You know, the same antihistamines that we take like Zyrtec and Allegra and Claritin come in a spray form called Azelastine. And if those nasal steroid sprays don't work, we can try those too. Or we can try both of them together. And some patients need that because they have really severe cases. And then there's a medication called ipertropium bromide. It's also another type of a spray that we use for patients who don't have allergies or they have really bad allergies. And this would be an additional thing that can really dry up that mucosa and the lining and the drainage. And then oral decongestants for symptomatic relief. Um, and I wouldn't do oral decongestants on a daily basis and long-term because that comes with a lot of side effects. It can raise your heart rate, it can raise your blood pressure, it can cause a lot of cardiac, cardio, cardiovascular side effects. So we really want to be you know, careful about using that on a daily basis. But if you really are having difficulty one day or a few days, uh, it, it may give you relief and you know, some, some support until you get to a place where you are able to maintain things with medical therapy. And then Surgical options, there are definitely surgical options for rhinitis. Um, this is not the first thing that we think of. 
you know, uh, sometimes, like I mentioned, there may be an anatomical issue. So the septum is deviated. And not only is the patient having rhinitis, but they're having difficulty breathing. And we've tried everything medically, and it's not working. So we fix the septum. We can do that under anesthesia. We can do it under local anesthesia. Um, so the patient can go to sleep, or the patient can be awake and have topical anesthetic in the, in the nose, similar to what would happen in a dentist office. Um, and then there's turbinate reduction, which is kind of a similar concept and, and, and another part of anatomy inside the nose. Um, we make sure that the patient doesn't have polyps or sinus issues, and if they need sinus surgery, which is not common, but it can happen. And then finally, there's a newer procedure called the Clarifix procedure, which probably most of the uh, participants today may not have heard about. But it, it's, um, it's a pretty cool, neat device. It's, um, it has a liquid nitrogen canister, and it has a delivery mechanism that delivers liquid nitrogen to the back of the nose where those input nerves are. The nerves that are giving you that sensory and uh, kind of receiving those sensory inputs, telling um, the nerve responsible for making more mucus, the sphenopalatine, to make mucus. So what it does is that we actually freeze that surface area and that freezes those surface receiving nerves. And it kind of dampens that signal that tells the, um, the sphenopalatine nerve to make more mucus. So it's not like the nerve is not gonna work anymore. It's gonna work, but the idea here is that you go from a, 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 a situation where you're hypersensitive to hopefully something that you're more um, normally sensitive. Um, and the good thing about this procedure is also it's safe. It's, you know, it can be done in the office under, un, under local anesthesia. I know generally you don't have to go to sleep for it. Very little downtime um, and really not a lot of post-treatment restrictions. I have a little video, like a, a little cartoon video that um, hopefully it works. Let's see. And if it doesn't work, I can always, yes, it looks like it's working. So, Basically, this video shows anatomy. These are the turbinates that I was telling you about. And this kind of shows uh, what happens when you get rhinitis, you get inflammation. This is that sphenopalatine nerve that I was telling you about. This is where it comes out. And then the fibers, the receiving fibers kind of go in this location inside your nose and the surface. The video kind of goes over you know, how many people are affected by rhinitis. In the U.S. itself, you can have more than 10 million. And I mean, we're spending a lot of money in terms of medications and time to the doctor's offices and all those things. And obviously, we talked about the fact that we want to avoid side effects. And, you know, some people just don't like using medication every day. And, and if the medication doesn't work, then there you go. So this device itself, and this is where you know, the hand pieces, and this is where I hold it. The canister goes in there. We talked about how it's, you know, safe, office-based, and downtime is really low. And then we're just doing local anesthetic. And then what happens is that we put a little device inside the nose, and we put a camera in there at the same time so I can see where I'm going. And we cool that area for about a minute each on both sides. 
And I guess this lady is very happy that she had <laughs> immediate relief. <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't want to put any uh, patient, um, uh, you know, um, uh, videos here, obviously, for HIPAA reasons. So I thought that right. the... There we go. Um, I thought that the uh, the um, the cartoon was a little bit more appropriate here because it could give us some information. Are there some common body parts that are affected by rhinitis? So basically, obviously, your nose. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that's where it starts. Um, your eyes, um, like we you know, with, with the itchy, watery eyes, and also then dryness because you have this balance of the watery, itchy eyes, and then you may. Uh, get dryness from, you know, too much irritation and you could, um, you know, you know you, you'll see kids who have the rhinitis and they have this, what we call the allergic salute. They're, you know, they're rubbing their nose so much that they get this like redness underneath the nose and the irritation underneath here. Um, you get these kind of raccoon eyes because patients are constantly rubbing their eyes from the itching and they get the, you know, bursting of blood vessels underneath and they get puffiness underneath the eyelids. Uh, the postnasal drainage can cause irritation in the back of their throat. So people feel like they have a sandpaper feeling in the back of their throat. The mucus can hit the vocal cords, can give them hoarseness. Their voice fatigues out throughout the day or weakens as the, it goes on. It actually sometimes hurts to talk. And in worst case scenario is that if you have, somebody has really bad postnasal drainage, especially if it's infected, is that it can give them bronchitis. It can go into their lungs and, and, and it can cause upper respiratory issues and shortness of breath. So those are some of the major things that I see as an ENT. What about ear pain? Is there any ear pain from rhinitis? It can, absolutely. So the inflammation can cause um, swelling around the opening of the eustachian canal. And the eustachian canal is the canal that basically drains and equalizes pressure between your middle ear and the back of your nose. So that, you know, what happens is that, um, you know, when you go up on an airplane and your ear starts popping, and most of us have learned to kind of open and close our mouth or jaw or chew gum, or maybe we pinch our nose and we try to blow steam out of your ear. If you think about it, like in a cartoon sense, yeah. that's where we're utilizing the opening of the eustachian canal to equalize that pressure again. So that eustachian canal opening, when it's, it's blocked because of the swelling and the mucus in the back of the throat, that can lead to pressure buildup in the ear. It's kind of like being on an airplane in your, in your living room and it just, you know, can hurt. It could, be annoying from it can make you feel like your hearing is muffled it can give you ringing in your ears so yeah it can it can cause a lot of those and, and especially in this location in your head and neck all these structures are so close to each other and, and intimately involved that you can have multiple body parts be affected does rhinitis dr hasham does it impact you at a certain age or can it impact you at every, any age it can be any age i mean you can have kids with allergies and okay you know, going to, uh, you know, the, the preschool and catching cold and having that. And then you can have the allergens uh, go along with you as a teenager and, you know, adulthood. And then you can have the people who are, you know, athletes. And as soon as they go outside and start running in the cold, they can have that issue. You can have the, you know, middle age or elderly folks uh, with all kinds of other um, medical problems. But then the non-allergic rhinitis happens to be much more common and folks who are, you know, uh, advanced age. So I would say 50 and above. Okay. Now, is rhinitis 
more common in certain climate areas, maybe the southwest, like the desert, versus more cold weather climates, like northern climates? Um, I, I, I can see that potentially as the dryness uh, being a factor. So places where it's a little bit more humid, you may mm -hmm. find that it may be less of an issue. Um, so if you're in a desert climate, you probably will have more dryness if you're exposed to, um, you know, pollution, uh, depending on the, the pollutants in the air. Um, if you're exposed to, you know, the, the, the allergens, um, you know, compared to, let's say, Florida, where you may have maybe more mold and indoor allergen issues versus here, where it'd be more like the pollen and a ragweed situation. So it all depends on what, you, what your environment, the mixture of the environment, the patient, and what their underlying allergens are and the things that they're reacting to. So I may have more problems here, but if I go to a drier climate, I may have less problems because of my allergen profile whereas somebody else may have the opposite. Yeah. So it all depends on the person and the and the combination of the environment. I know every individual is different when it comes to symptoms, but are there common triggers of rhinitis? So usually common triggers, I mean the basic stuff that we can, you know, talk about is, you know, going out in cold and windy air, you know, cold windy air is hitting your face or you start eating really spicy food or um, you know, that's the that's the usual normal triggers that all of us have. Um, but otherwise, you know, things like smoke, um, uh, it can be more irritating to some people than others, environmental pollutants, chemicals. So somebody, you know, works in a, in a field where they have to use chemicals to do cleaning or other things. Uh, they, I've had patients who've had to stop certain jobs because they were much more sensitive to it than others. Perfumes in some cases. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, allergens, uh, you know, I've had patients during COVID especially who are no, no longer working in their office, <clears throat> they're at home, and they worked in a, you know, really old office building in downtown DC, and their office was in the basement, and they're like so much better now because I don't have to deal with the mold probably in that, in that <laughs> old building, versus some other folks who are now at their house, and their house is much older, and now they're exposed to the indoor allergens in their home whereas they had the respite during the day when they were leaving the house. So yeah, the environmental environment can really significantly affect it. So you had mentioned, Dr. Hisham, that if left untreated, you could have some post-nasal drainage, maybe bronchitis, but long-term wise, how dangerous is it for rhinitis to go left untreated? So I wouldn't say it's dangerous. Okay. Um, I think it's more along the lines of quality of life. Okay. Uh, which can be, you know, there are things in medicine that, you know, that are quote unquote dangerous and we're looking at because God forbid it's going to be causing some significant morbidity or, you know, issues with, you know, mortality or life or, you know, situation. And then there's things in medicine that we're dealing with because we're treating quality of life issues. And they can, in my opinion, they are as important as some of the other stuff that we perhaps maybe put into a, a higher category. Um, the, the thing about quality of life, uh, you know, issues is that at that point in time, then the, the kind of the dilemma between the, the, the treatment algorithm and how aggressive you want to be for the treatment. And you really have to really spend time and talking to the patient individually and saying, you know, this is, you know, what brought you in. This is how much you're telling me this is bothering you. You probably, it bothers you a lot more um, if you think about it. 
these are the things that I can offer you for treatment, and these are the possible side effects or maybe complications that could potentially happen with a treatment. And you know, you kind of have that really clear discussion with the patient um, with realistic expectations, and, and basically have a mutual kind of um, you know point that you're agreeing to as far as what the patient would like to do. Um, and and you know depending on who that patient is and how much this is affecting their quality of life. Some people may want to be really aggressive and other people are like, you know what, now that you told me that this is not going to be really that bad, I'm not going to have a dangerous problem because of this. I'm good. I can deal with it. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to take medicine. I'm not going to do a procedure. And that's fine. And that's totally okay. Is rhinitis in any way contagious, doc? If it's infectious, sure. But those are the situations where, you know, you have a cold or you have a sinus infection. Uh, usually a sinus infection is not infectious, but a, a common cold would be. Um, but those are temporary. You know, you would only have it during that period of time that you are, you know, are undergoing, you know, that particular ailment. So once you're over the cold, you shouldn't have rhinitis anymore. Um, so. Okay. Uh, as far as those with rhinitis, are they also impacted by other chronic diseases like asthma or eczema as well? Most people who have rhinitis, and like I said, most people who have rhinitis have it because they have allergies. Okay. Um, the, aller the folks who are allergic are much more likely to have asthma and eczema, and what we call an atopic state. It's A-T-O-P-I-C. So uh, folks who are allergic have... Uh, a higher uh, IgE, these antibodies in the system, and this tend to also help exacerbate asthma um, and lung issues and and skin problems and eczema. That's why some people with allergies, you know, get ear itching and wax buildup, and they can have nasal polyps and they can have um, asthma as well at the same time. So. Um, sometimes they even have difficulty swallowing and other things. So yeah, they did that. Definitely, that's a kind of the spectrum of uh, of folks who are um, have a reactive airway. That's what we call. Okay. Obviously, Doc, we're in unprecedented times with the pandemic. How has COVID impacted rhinitis occurrence or treatment? The treatment hasn't changed. Okay. The treatment is the same. In terms of the occurrence, I think that obviously we're see I'm seeing a couple of different things in terms of patients who um, have had COVID, um, you know, when they're they're either asymptomatic, or if they are symptomatic, they may have you know usual cold symptoms, um, or they may not have cold symptoms, and which would give them rhinitis. They may have shortness of breath. I've had patients come in with burning in their nose and dryness, excessive dryness after they've had COVID. And obviously, the thing that you've heard about is a change in scent or loss of sense of smell. And that, um, you know, kind of the recovery period after that, leading to this burning and dryness and mucus and things like that that have lasted longer than, than usual and what they're experienced in the past. Um, so I feel like I, I, I've seen a lot more patients with that complaint that may have been, you know, in the past just the allergies and the non-allergy categories we talked about, but now we have a lot more that are, you know, that are also COVID. But that being said, still majority of patients that I see with this don't have COVID. Most of them um, are, you know, 
either allergies or this, the, the list that I gave earlier. Yeah. So Doc, I know you've got so much good information here. If somebody's watching this, is, is there any one or two takeaways that you would say to them if they've been having some sinus issues for so long or runny nose that just get up and do something about it? Is there any a couple of takeaways you can give them? I mean, like I said, you've so much good information here. Um, Thank you. Is that possible? Yeah, I think so. I think that I, as a sinus sufferer myself, an allergy sufferer myself, lifelong, um, people like us, we have a different level of what we think is normal. <laughs> You know, I think that we deal with things um, for a much longer period of time than most uh, because it's, it's like the concept of, okay, I'm always congested. Okay, I always have a little bit of mucus. It's, this is just the way it is. Um, and we, because of that, we tend to kind of maybe let, sometimes let it go for too long. And we, then we get to the office when we, we have a full-blown sinus infection and our voice is gone and we're coughing all the time. And now it becomes an urgency or an emergency where you have to go to the doctor's office and you may get antibiotics, you may get steroids by mouth and much more severe, um, you know, stronger medical therapy. Whereas if you were treating the root causes earlier, you probably would have avoided that. Um, and especially if you get older, it starts affecting your breathing. Um, and, and affecting your lung health and pulmonary health, which is so important, especially during this pandemic, um, you know, it, it prob it's much better to be proactive and preventative than to, um, you know, attack the, the problem that has now resulted uh, for, because of years of, I wouldn't call it neg negligence and more like, you know, some treatment here, or some treatment there, but then you're like, I can just deal with it. This is fine. Um, and we're so busy in our day-to-day -day lives, so I can I totally understand, and I'm guilty of it too. So I would say, you know, don't, um, you know, get too hung up on self-medicating. But if things are fairly straightforward, you know, try an allergy pill for a couple of days and see if it makes a difference. Try the nasal steroid sprays for a couple of days if there's no contraindications for you. And you can definitely check with your doctor if there's a contraindication for you. Uh, for a couple of days and see if it makes a difference. If it makes a difference, then it's worthwhile to do allergy testing mm -hmm. and figuring out what is a good plan for you. Should I just take the medicine willy-nilly all the time? Well, it may give you side effects. Maybe you need to figure out if it's worthwhile doing that. Um, so I would say that's important, you know, kind of be in tune with your body and uh, seek out, um, you know, the advice of the professionals that uh, you know, that's their job. That's what they're meant to do. And then the other thing I would say is that don't um, self-treat for too long. Yeah. You know, kind of um, do it for just so you can see if it makes a difference. And if it does, then you know that which kind of guides you where to go so that you have an idea of much more efficient directed care. I think those are some of the things that I would kind of keep in my mind. Very good. Well, thank you, Dr. Sean, that was excellent. Uh, how can people find you? Um, so I am going to, um, there we go. Hey, I'm going to leave my email here. Um, and this is the email that I use with my patients all the time. So um, they can, you know, shoot me an email, um, htodhisham at gmail.com with any questions. Uh, I'd be happy to answer back. And if there's something that they want to discuss further, they can definitely um, you know, come and see me in my office. I'm in, currently in Washington, D.C. on K Street. 
um, and um, you know they can call the office at 202-833-3500. Yeah, for those that are listening on our podcast, uh, the email is h-t-o-d-d-h-e-s-h-a-m at gmail.com. Um, as far as knowledgeable aging, all of our archived webinars are on our website. You can also go onto our YouTube page. I encourage you to subscribe. We update it five to six times per week. If podcasts are your things, uh, you can uh, you can find us on Spotify, uh, Apple Tunes, etc. Till next time, I'm your host Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.